Hello everyone, this is Flo. And this is Jesse. Welcome to another episode of the Great War Supporter Podcast. And before we start, just uh, if you hear weird background noises, we are actually recording this on a Sunday morning in Berlin-Kreuzberg, where our studio is. And I kid you not, there is an interpretive dance drum circle outside in the yard, and there is a yoga goa session going on next door in the yoga studio. So you might hear some weird sounds uh, in the background. Apologies for that. I mean, this is Berlin, folks. Come and visit. And for the uninitiated, Goa is a kind of electronic techno music. Yeah. So I've heard. And now the best segue in the history of podcast. Speaking of chaotic circumstances, let's have a look <laughs> at the Baltics in early 1919. Wow, that is, that is like Pulitzer Prize-worthy uh, literary connections Thank there. you, thank you. <laughs> I, I will accept my award after this recording. Good. So, the Baltics. Um, I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I say it was chaotic. This is like clusterfuck number 274 yeah. in Eastern and Central Europe. Can I say clusterfuck on yeah, the podcast? Yeah, Okay, all right. I mean, uh, let's say it's so chaotic that we decided uh, we only briefly talk about it in the Russian Civil War episode that we did earlier this year and make an entire episode about it and still leave out one of the countries, uh, Lithuania, which is even more complicated and will get its own episode later. Yeah, I can't wait. Yeah. Um, also, uh, at this point, shout out to the Estonian National Archives for uh, making it possible for us to make an episode about it because they have a lot of cool uh, footage, digitalized um, photos, even film reels that we were able to use for this episode. So that was great. Um, I think we should start with the Germans, um, meaning with the um, Baltic Germans, which were a German-speaking ethnic minority in the former Russian Empire and were a faction in the fighting there and the, let's say, leftovers of the German armed forces that, you know, of course, occupied the Baltics um, when the Russian re Russians retreated during the main fighting, 1917, 1918, I think. Um, because my impression uh, when I read uh, through the research and through the script was this was basically the Wild East for them, for some of them. Because you have these, uh, you have some of them who come from Germany to the Baltics, sell off all of their possessions, come to the Baltics to fight because they are, they heard that there are promises of getting your own land if you uh, prove yourself in the fighting, and this is this. There's so many parallels here in terms of like the Wild West that uh, this really uh, struck me. Yeah, including obviously a lack of stability or lack of a monopoly on violence on the part of any state, uh, never mind the, the Latvian uh, Republic, where most of the Baltic Germans were concentrated, let's say. Um, yeah, you have a kind of whole rainbow of motivations, and some of them go back to a lot older traditions of German settlement towards the east, to uh, just anti-Bolshevik motivation, to people just spoiling for a fight, um, to the economic and material motivation of, of getting land. 
so it's kind of like, in a way, when there's a vacuum and, and an absence of all order, people kind of f jump on that as an opportunity to fill it with their particular agenda, let's say, or motivation. And you just have that mixed into a big soup generally, but even specifically within the, the German-speaking uh, contingent of this, of this uh, mess in the Balkans. In the end... Not uh, the Balkans, the Baltics. Oh, geez, sorry, yeah. <laughs> well, you can forgive me for... for uh, Another chaotic for region one. in Europe that we will come to later. Exactly, yeah. Uh, but in the end, uh, it didn't work out quite according to plan for those who were looking for land anyway, because uh, in July, we don't quite uh, get into detail in the episode about this, because it happens uh, slightly later, but in July, Ulmanis, who had sort of wanted to motivate Germans to come when they were allied to the Latvian Republic, said, yeah, you can get citizenship and we'll see about giving you some land and things like that. In July, once the Treaty of Versailles had been signed, conveniently, that becomes his justification to say, well, that invalidates my offer of citizenship and land for the Germans who fought alongside the Latvian Republic. So, too bad. Yeah, and I think it's also worth pointing out that, of course, these ideas and motivations, um, as there's this German word called Sehnsucht, you know, this kind of uh, interpretation into uh, what kind of future could be uh, if you uh, uh, prove your worth and everything. Uh, I think a lot of this also has to do with the vacuum and the what uh, Leonard called the... Um, the peace treaty dreamland that existed mm -hmm. between the armistice of 1918. I think the Treaty of Versailles is a nice bridge and what you just said about also this kind of Sehnsucht, as we say in German, this uh, utopian future that could be, uh, which is a motivator for the Germans there, in a sense of that before the peace treaty terms are actually made public, they think that uh, uh, the peace treaty that is going to come will be pretty just and they have all these ideas about um, keeping the German uh, conquest, uh, the German possessions, the new ones uh, that were made during the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk and that uh, Germany will have this kind of new uh, annexations in the East. Um, I mean, there were these ideas in 1917 about Oberost uh, you know, kind of Germanized uh, Baltic territory. Um, and then even once the uh, conditions of the treaty are made public in May, then they still think there's no way the Germans will sign this. And uh, if they don't sign this uh, ridiculous offer, then actually there will be more fighting uh, and we can further prove our worth to the German people and to the government and it's all going to be great uh, and everything. And I think this is uh, quite fascinating. Yeah, and just uh, a little side note, trivia side note, Sehnsucht was also the title of a Rammstein album, I believe, uh, yeah, from way back. Yeah, it's one of these nice uh, German philosophical words which, uh, which I think are fa used fairly often even in English nowadays. Yeah, even uh, this is kind of where Sehnsucht meets uh, Drang nach Osten, so to speak, yeah, the drive towards the east. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, that's, that's a whole other thing, the continuity of um, uh, the, a lot of the people that fight, the Germans that fight in this conflict would later on be 
part of the political violence from the right uh, and be part of the early uh, Nazi movement. Uh, and there would, of course, be, you know, a, they, would, they would return in the, uh, in the early 40s. Let's call it that. Even before that, I, I think, uh, in the sense that um, the core of an organization that we haven't talked about a lot yet in the episodes, there was, there was this uh, terrorist cell, basically, called the Organization Consul, and it, was mostly, it mostly consisted of Freikorpsmen, and they ended up being involved in some very high-profile murders of uh, Weimar Republic politicians in the early 20s. And the kind of core of their leadership was uh, was active in the in the Baltic Freikorps units. Yeah, we talked about the brutalization theory, of course, before, mainly focused on uh, the Western Front. Uh, I also talked to a historian uh, a while back, and he there's also, an, of course, an interpretation of the brutalization theory in regards to the Eastern Front that a lot of the German units and the German army um, saw a lot of irregular fighting, uh, political violence, ethnic cleansing, uh, things like that, uh, In starting with the signing of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, uh, when they were sent to Ukraine and to other parts of Eastern Europe to pacify the region, to extract the resources so that the German mainland can continue fighting in the West. And that from there on, it's a basically a slippery slope to uh, the Baltic Wars of Independence that we just talked about, the Russian Civil War, the Polish uprising that we also talked about, the, and you know the coup attempts further down the road, um, and so on, and, and so, so on, and, and so, so on. on. Yeah. So and that at some point, these people, some of these people, didn't know anything else apart from this kind of fighting anymore. I think, and or let's say, let's call it this kind of problem-solving approach through right. guns and uh, military logic. Uh, yeah. Now we talked a lot about the Germans and of course they, I mean, they were an influential factor there, but I mean this is also nowadays called the Estonian and the Latvian War of Independence, so of course they played a big role there as well. So uh, are there any particular anecdotes or anything that you found interesting that didn't make it into the episode? Well basically when you have a big bag of chaos like this, all sorts of weird things happen that are hard to kind of wedge into a coherent or what I hope comes across as a coherent episode in any case. Um, for example, there was quite a lot of crazy individual actions where, you know, people got kidnapped or whatever, like, for example, the, the Latvian puppet leader who was installed by the Germans after the coup in April, uh, Nidras was his name. He ends up later getting, uh, like a month later, getting kidnapped and uh, by the Latvian forces. And in addition, in the Baltic, the, when the British capture a couple of uh, Bolshevik ships, and then of course they give them to the Estonians, they captured the uh, Red Navy commander in the Baltic whom they eventually swapped for some Britishers who'd been captured by the Red Army in northern Russia. So there's just uh, all sorts of interesting little uh, chaotic things going on. And uh, as far as some, you know, uh, let's say irregular actions are concerned, most of the Baltic Germans, of course, are fighting, let's say, with this German conglomerate of, of Freikorps, Landeswehr, and the Baltic German militia, but some fight with the Estonians, 
and uh, they had a, a Baltic German battalion, which had its own ice bloat flotilla on uh, one of the lakes there. And uh, as I discovered in preparing this episode, an ice boat is basically a sailboat on skis. So when the lake is frozen, you can still project power. And they mounted a machine gun on these things. So you basically have ski sailboats whipping around with machine guns. I mean, this is, but this is stuff that you, you just can't make it up. Yeah, yeah, you can't. And um, speaking about some, you know, the research that uh, we did for the episode, this is where the research for this episode was done by Kevin Axe, who uh, is a fan of the show. He studied in Estonia and he actually came by earlier and we recorded an interview to take another deep dive into some of the crazier anecdotes that happened during the fighting. And through editing magic, you're going to hear this. So welcome, Kevin, to the Supporter Podcast. Um, Kevin Axe has a master's degree in history from the University of Tartu in Estonia, and he provided us with uh, most of the research that we used to build the Latvia and Estonia episode that is coming out this June. So Kevin, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, your experience uh, researching this uh, small but extremely complicated region and what sort of stuck out at you and, and uh, maybe surprised you a little bit. Sure. So I was happy to find many useful sources here in Berlin, especially at the University of Humboldt and also at the German Technical Museum. And it was also interesting to see, um, one thing I enjoy about historical research is seeing different takes on the same issues, seeing different approaches and trying to create a clear narrative out of all these sources which disagree. Some are more in favor of one side, some more in another. There was even a journalist who had all these anecdotes which were often hard to believe. Can you share some of these hard to believe anecdotes with, with responsible caveats, let's say? <laughs> sure. Um, he, uh, Durante, I believe was the name, would later become infamous. He would report that the Holodomor, the um, mass starvation in Ukraine, did not occur. He would win a Pulitzer for his reporting in the 30s and as recently as the 90s and aughts, there was a campaign to try and take this away. Uh, much of his reporting involves him traveling, meeting interesting people, hearing stories, often secondhand. Um, and he has this kind of laddish approach to his um, journalism. He would go, he would meet officers, he would get confused and somehow make it to the right place. At one point, he was traveling to what was often called Dorpat, but had recently been renamed to Tartu. He passed through this mystery town of Tartu and didn't realize that he had missed his stop until he was in Latvia. He claimed that there were drunken soldiers who tried to rob the train, and he basically bluffed his way into getting them out of his car. And in return, the drunken Estonian officer he was with offered to get him on the next train back to Tartu. And that's how he traveled across the country. He would later meet with Harold Alexander, who at the time was 28 years old and had just made, been put in charge of the Landeswehr, this Baltic German militia in Latvia. They had dubious loyalties, as is made clear in the Estonia Latvia episode, but essentially after the Battle of Sesis, after the end of June, they were, um, basically this officer was put in charge of them and supposedly they clicked. 
they liked each other. He too was a nobleman from Ireland. He was used to dealing with people, um, how do you explain this? Um, much the same way that Baltic Germans were a, an elite group with a different language in charge of a minority for centuries, so too did he, as an English nobleman in Ireland, um, have a connection. Supposedly, when the Bermontists would later march on Riga, he was able to convince the Landeswehr not to interfere, in part just because he was charismatic, they liked him, and later he would go on to become a decorated field marshal in World War II. Indeed, I think he commanded the Mediterranean theater for some time yes. in the Second World War. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, and we can edit this out, so yeah, this yeah. out if I am, mm -hmm. he went on to become the Governor General of Canada afterwards, which uh, is not necessarily the way you'd plan your career if you're an <laughs> English nobleman setting up shop in Ireland um, in World War I. So um, let's skip to maybe some of the bigger picture questions, mm -hmm. because it's easy, like the, the anecdotes can be crazy, but part of the challenge, I think, in, in explaining this uh, region at this time is how to get a bit of an overview, because it's not easy. As you say, there are changing loyalties. I mean, there were Latvians, for example, pretty well represented fighting for the Latvian Republic in the Landeswehr and fighting for the Bolsheviks. So how do we best kind of look at some of the bigger picture questions? Like one that stuck with me was the question of nationality versus class, right? And now, when we look back, or we take out history books uh, from the library, often the focus is a national one, right? So what's, what's celebrated now? What do people write about now? What's well, the independence of Estonia and Latvia and of course also Lithuania? But at the time, my impression is uh, things were a little bit blurrier. Sure, and I think one problem too is that nationality, ethnicity was also related to class. We have these Baltic Germans who for 700 years had been the elites. They both owned the manors and also made up most of the middle class, the craftsmen in the cities. Indeed, there were portions of cities which, were, which could only be visited by Baltic Germans. And so um, I think it's easy to say most of the lower class, most of the proletariat, most of the uh, peasants were composed of one ethnicity and their elites were generally of a different ethnicity. So anything that's related to class is also, to some extent, related to nationality during this time. And so I think that's one reason why it was easy for people to be joining different sides. How many Latvians, especially the Latvian riflemen, returned to Latvia looking forward not just to creating a socialist republic, but also to, as they saw it, liberating their country from the Germans and not just, say, the um, Imperial German Army, but also the Baltic Germans, and even conquering Riga, which was seen by some as a German city. Do you think that the relationship between the Baltic Germans and the Imperial Russian administration uh, played a role in all of this? Because the talk is liberating from the Germans, but actually it's the Russians who were running the show in terms of the state power. Um, 
but as far as I understand, there was a, a special relationship, let's say, between the Baltic Germans and the, and the Russian administration. Exactly. There were special privileges which the Baltic Germans had had for centuries, and the Russians essentially allowed them to keep them. During a time when much of what is now Estonia and Latvia was under Swedish control, the Swedish crown tried to take back some of these privileges, but when uh, this area became part of the Russian Empire, the privileges were restored in return for loyalty. So Baltic Germans were perhaps the most well-educated ethnicity in the world. They were loyal generals, they were excellent explorers and scientists. They served the Tsar well and had special privileges, although the Estonian and Latvian serfs were actually emancipated before other serfs elsewhere in the Russian Empire. Actually, I think uh, one of the generals on the Russian side at the Battle of Tannenberg was a Baltic German, right? Rennenkampf, I think, uh, was uh, involved there. Right, and even people who were in the army which took Paris um, during the Napoleonic Wars, there were several generals such as, I believe, Barclay de Tolly, who were Baltic Germans. Um, actually, on the topic of, uh, of Germans and elites, I noticed that the, the Latvian prime minister's last name sounds awfully German, like Ulmanis sounds like a Latvianized Ulman, which is not an uncommon uh, German name. Do you know anything about his uh, background? Is that is That's that a good catch. Um, I'm not familiar with his background. It wouldn't surprise me. Estonians and Latvians essentially didn't have surnames until relatively recently, until the time of the National Awakening. People were often named after the estates on which they were born, although other people, especially a bit later, were given names which were seen as traditional. Uh, they were often given names which pertain to the countryside. So you often see people whose names refer to um, animals, to plants, or to other aspects of the natural landscape. But it wouldn't surprise me if some had German names, Perhaps they had a German sponsor which helped their families attain education or move to a city. Perhaps they were just named after a manor which was named after the German landlord. True. Um, so one of, the, one of the more colorful players, I guess you could say, in this uh, Baltic mess, if I can allow myself that term, is the, uh, is the Freikorps, right? And there's this famous iron division with the death's head flag and all that sort of thing. Um, so what, I don't know, what sticks out to you about, about their motivations, about their cohesiveness, about their relationship to the fighting? I found it interesting just how many different motivations there were. There were different units, the different standards, some adopted the death's head, some adopted swastikas, and indeed many of these people would form the core of the early Nazi party. Some would even return as Nazi administrators in the 40s. Um, Ernst von Salomon, a writer who was a member of the Freikorps and is always quite quotable, described people dressing up in a sort of romantic sense. One of his friends dressed up as a wandering minstrel. Uh, he said that units from Hamburg would start growing beards and singing old pirate songs. Many people came for land. It's interesting that both sides were fighting for land, and many Freikorps expected they would receive, in exchange for about four weeks of service, land, either for free from the Latvian government or at a steep discount from the um, or at a steep discount from Baltic German landlords. Ironically, the people they were fighting would 
attain much of the land they were looking for, but they took courses in how to improve land. Some actually sold all their possessions, bought land in Latvia, and began to work at and it's always a bit unclear how much land they could have received. There was an agreement at the end of December between the Latvian government and a German official, but it was vague. And when the Treaty of Versailles was signed, the Latvian government said their early agreement is null and void. Indeed, there were people who were looking to establish some sort of stronger German state to the east. There were some who saw themselves as a buffer between Bolshevism and East Prussia. There were some who thought that the Estonians and Latvians would become allies in a fight against Bolshevism, or who saw the Estonians and Latvians as mere puppets of the Entente. So how's that for foreshadowing 1941? <laughs> um, let's talk about the hardware a little bit. Um, how were the different armies, or different, let's say, armies is probably an exaggeration in some cases, armed forces uh, able to equip themselves and sort of fight effectively in the field. Now, my instinct would be, okay, well, the Germans are probably by far the best equipped, best trained, best organized, but how do you end up with like an Estonian fighting force that can do anything, that has uh, the right kind of uh, weapons? As we know, artillery is the queen of the battlefield at this uh, stage of history. This was primarily a light infantry war. And if you could bring an armored, and if you could bring an armored train to a battle, you probably won it already. There are very few cases of tanks. There were some armored cars. Later, we'll see a few more tanks. The Germans, of course, were quite heavily armed. Many of them were veterans. They were often able to use stormtrooper tactics. The the Estonians actually ended up quite heavily armed themselves, thanks to the Royal Navy, which as early as late December 1918 was bringing weapons, naval guns, howitzers, light machine guns, which according to one account, the Bolsheviks had not encountered on the field and were not prepared for, like Lewis or Madsen machine guns. The Royal Navy also dropped off aircraft, modern aircraft, like Sopwith Camels, which made up the fledgling Estonian Air Force. The Estonians also created their own armored trains. Initially, they just had sand and wood, but eventually they would become quite heavily armored. They would use this heavy artillery that the Royal Navy had brought them with their armored trains, which indeed won various battles. And uh, let's stick with the Royal Navy for a moment because uh, some of the some of the most entertaining little nuggets, I guess, in, in the, the research that you provided us have to do with the British assessment of the situation or with some of the characters involved, including the commander, Admiral Cowan. So why don't you tell us a little bit about, uh, about what the British were up to? So the British, the British came bearing gifts. Within their first week, they were able to capture two um, Russian destroyers one of which actually had the commissar for the Baltic Sea Fleet, who was later exchanged for 18 British officers captured on other fronts. This made up the Estonian Navy, two destroyers and a German gunboat that the Germans gave to the Estonians in the very beginning. And the Estonians are able to use this little fleet both to support actions on land and to land Marines. Often in the case, in, often over the course of an offensive, they would be able to make several landings behind the Russian lines, flanking them or attacking the rear. But yeah, the, 
the Royal Navy had a very vague directive. They were to show the flag, to find out what was happening, and to basically hold back the Red Fleet. They were told, they weren't even sure exactly who was seen as hostile. Initially, they were told, um, you may fire if fired upon, to which they complained, we may already be sinking by the time we know we're fired upon. There might already be torpedoes on their way. That seems so they like were a told. reasonable concern, yeah. Right. Initially, they had a small fleet. They even lost a cruiser to a mine on the way there. This fleet would grow. Mines were always a problem. As it turns out, the Red Fleet lost all of its minefield charts at some point early in the Russian Civil War. By the end of it, 1918, nobody knew where any of the mines were. And indeed, some of these mines are still being found today. Well, that sounds like uh, a bit of a stress-inducing uh, environment in which to uh, conduct your business. Um, but it seems like, uh, according to your research, Admiral Cowan was not afraid of uh, a little stress-induced uh, action. Can you tell us a bit more about, about him and uh, the kind of character that he was? Admiral Cowan was larger than life. Um, maybe there's a quote that I have on my phone. It's, um, I think I had it in the email in which he is complaining that the litany, he, there is a chaplain on the HMS Hood, his flagship, who wants to give a, a sermon, a litany, and Cohen says, I'll let you give a sermon if you must, but please skip the part about avoiding action, avoiding death, because I haven't been trained for anything else. And indeed, Cohen would insist on fighting in World War II. He found himself in North Africa on the front lines during an Italian attack. Uh, as he describes it, they were a handful of platoons facing a division. <clears throat> Cohen says that during the first wave, uh, the Italians quickly passed them over, and he found himself the only person who was not dead or injured. He hid behind a Bren carrier, and an Italian armored car drove up, and its crew came out to investigate. He fired on them with a revolver, dropping one, as he says, and ultimately they convinced him to surrender when he'd used up all of his ammunition. He would later be exchanged. He was seen as too old, he was already in his early 70s, to keep fighting, but then he would still keep fighting. <laughs> I, I mean, that's actually quite generous of the Italians after yes. he had uh, shot one of them to, uh, to kind of be patient enough for a surrender. Often doesn't work out that way. Uh, far from far from normal bases, so the Royal Navy had to operate far from its usual bases. Much of the Royal Fleet was kept in a, an anchorage in Finland, and indeed they often had to make repairs on the fly. There's a case of one monitor they used, the HMS Erebus, which damaged its rudders and its engine while passing the North Cape on its way to Murmansk. The crew ended up raising its main gun, a 15-H gun, using it as a mast and hanging an awning from it, which did the trick. It carried it all the way to Murmansk. And once in Murmansk, they were able to fashion a mast, but that broke off during the first storm. They went back to using the main gun as a mast again. So in this episode, we kind of take things up to uh, the midsummer, let's say, of 1919, where a lot has gone on. Some things look like they're going in a certain direction, 
but it's not over. Uh, the waves of, of de instability are going to continue. So why don't you give us a little teaser about what is awaiting the, the Baltic region in the second half of 1919? Sure. The German troops who are led by von der Gotz, they will not be leaving. Heinz, a young Heinz Guderian will come and make an effort to prevent them from returning to Germany. Instead, they will be disguising themselves as Russians officially, saying that any, saying that any treaties regarding Germans do not apply to them as Russians. They will be causing havoc in Latvia. We'll also be seeing the Estonian Verdun as the Red Army makes attack after attack across the Narva River, trying to take Narva in order to improve its position during peace talks. There will also be one last drive on Petrograd. We'll see how close it comes, and we'll see what happens to the unsuccessful army when it tries to retreat. All right, well, that sounds like there's no sort of shortage of, um, of action to come. And for any of our Lithuanian listeners out there, uh, fear not, we will uh, have more coverage of Lithuania in the months to come. It worked out that in this case we focused on your two northern neighbors, but uh, we'll, we'll come back around to the Lithuanians. So thank you Kevin for joining us today and for helping us with the research for the episode. Thank you for having me. All right, thanks again Kevin for doing the research and helping us out uh, making sense of the situation in the Baltics. Uh, as I said, um, sort of, yeah, sort of. Uh, it will only get a bit more complicated down the road uh, later this year, and we will cover that as well in our episodes. Um, if you have any questions, uh, any remarks, just post them on Patreon or wherever you listen to the podcast. I, there's several ways to get in touch with us. Uh, as a minor production note, uh, we will go on summer vacation uh, in uh, early July now, so. Um, Keep that in mind uh, that it might take a week or two before we get back to you. Um, but we will be back by mid-July and uh, back in full force, so to speak. Just in time for all the summer offensives. Exactly. So um, thanks for your support. See you later. Thank you and we'll see you in the next episode. Cool. cool.